The Today in Space podcast is brought to you by AG3D Printing, bringing your ideas into reality. Uh, you can check us out at AG3D Printing on Instagram or at www.ag3d-printing.com. And if you want to help support the podcast, use our Amazon link on every week's episode and do your shopping through there. It helps support us and it costs you nothing. So without further ado, let's start the show. Today in space. Today in space. What's up, everybody? We're here. It's Sunday night or Monday morning, depending on when you're listening to it. And uh, welcome back to Today in Space. I, it is, so if you're listening to this on Monday, it's Halloween. Uh, if you're an adult, you've probably already dressed up and enjoyed your Halloween. Uh, I know I did mine. Uh, Saturday night, had a party in, uh, in an apartment in Boston, had a great time. Um, I ended up meeting some, uh, some old college friends, which was awesome. Uh, shout out, um, to, to Sean, Olivia, James Kirk. That's right. That's right. That's his name. He's damn proud of it. Uh, so shout out. It was great seeing you guys again. Uh, this year, uh, I had grand plans for what I was going to do, um, but uh, they kind of fell through the crack. So uh, I still ended up being who I was going to be. I was Ash Ketchum. And uh, I had a whole plan. I was going to be, I was going to 3D print all the badges I was going to just from obviously the first Game Boy games. I mean, because that's my generation. I'm you know not doing any crazy new stuff. Um, I can't honestly say I've played a Pokemon game in a long time, but it's still a part of my soul. Okay, um, it's literally in my being. But anyways, uh, and I was gonna three D print a, a functional Pokeball. but the three D printer went down this week, and I had to do some maintenance. So let's just jump into the 3D printing update for this week. So the 3D printer went down, uh, just had some issues with the nozzle. It stopped, uh, well, okay. So originally the issue was that, you know, in every 3D print, in every FDM printer that uses plastic filament, um, there's usually some kind of drive gear that's pushing the filament through. Um, and over time, these gears, depending on the ones you have, it's different for each one, but you will have to clean them out of the, the plastic that ends up getting built up, um, in the gears, just because it's, it's literally grabbing into the plastic and little particles end up building up. So, um, this happened in the middle of a print that I was working on the Pokeball. I was, I was like, it was printing the button and I started noticing, no more filament was coming out. So I was like, oh God. So I had to shut down the print and check out the printer. And because I have a Bowden system, the drive gear that pushes the filament is not next to the nozzle. So the, the part that heats up the filament and the part that pushes the filament are in two separate places. So, and there's a, you know, PTFE tube that 
helps guide it through. And it's, it's a good system. It works great. But um, I had to make a quick decision and figure out how am I getting this out. Now, part of it is my inexperience. I've never dealt with the situation before. But um, I ran into the problem that the filament got stuck and I cut the filament short so that the machine couldn't just pull it out after I cleaned the gears. I should have cut the filament. I should have had a whole bunch of filament, you know, cut it at the end. So that way the, the machine could then pull itself out, push it back in, that kind of thing. So I know it's difficult without a visual, but um, basically, you know, I, I made an error. I made a mistake. It happens. Um, but then it ended up becoming a much bigger issue where now there was filament stuck in the nozzle. I don't know how it happened, but... Um, spent a few days trying to figure out how to get it out. I uh, literally took a blowtorch and was heating up the uh, metal end of the the nozzle and trying to get the plastic to go through, trying to push plastic from the back end to go through. I don't know what happened. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but it just would not go anywhere. And I'm sure my efforts to try and push plastic through only made it worse. So um, to make a long story short, after the blowtorch option didn't work, uh, I had ABS so in there. So obviously acetone would be the next good choice to help you know melt that plastic out. So uh, what I did is I had to break down the nozzle to just the metal components and soak it in an acetone uh, uh, jar, basically, so I could close it off so the acetone didn't uh, uh, evaporate. And it worked pretty well. I mean, most of the acetone after I came home from work that day, most of the acetone had uh, gummed up, essentially, the acetone, or the acetone had kind of just gone to the point where it just disintegrated completely, and the acetone went from clear to this uh, white-ish, uh, you know, no longer transparent color. You know, it was opaque, but there was still something wrong, and honestly, after spending uh, three whole days and something like, you know... Uh, eight to 12 hours on it, you know, I have to start looking at, okay, I, I can probably fix this, but with the time I, I, I have available to me, you know, I need to have this printer up and running. So I ended up getting a new nozzle from the company and that'll be in early this week and hopefully around the day this episode comes out. So we'll be back up and running and I'll be able to take a better look at that nozzle and hopefully, um, get that one back up and running. So at least I have some spare parts uh, in case something, an issue like this happens again. But, uh, so that was, a <laughs> that was a, an interesting pothole in the road for this week, but, uh, we got through it. Uh, we found a solution. Um, even if it wasn't one that I could do myself, uh, you know, just got to make these quick decisions and live with them. So, uh, we're on the other side of it now and the 3d printer will be back up and running midweek and, uh, I'm going to finish off that Pokeball, so I'll be able to do a post, and you guys will see that online. And uh, that's that's about it for uh, that. But we can go further on the 3D printing update before we get into the orbital news for this week. Uh, let's see. So, you know, other than that, we've been doing a lot of designing here. We've got uh, a few products we're working on here, which you'll see coming up later this year, hopefully before Christmas. And... Other than that, uh, we've also upgraded the heated system uh, down here uh, in in our room. So the 
you know, I was telling you before, I was having warpage issues, you know, now that the, the weather's getting colder, so is my room, since it is a basement. Uh, <laughs> so the box itself has been reacting to the temperature of the room, which makes sense, because it's only single-pane glass. So, you know, the, the, the way that new glass windows work today is they're not single pane. Most most windows now are, are, are not single pane. They have multiple panes. And the reason for that is simple heat exchange. You know, having a layer of air between the glass um, allows that air to basically be the heat exchanger for the room so that the air does not have to, tr- the heat does not have to transfer through it. It only um, gets manipulated by that air that's trapped between the layers. So, because my box is only single pane, it was completely being influenced by the temperature of the room. So uh, now that we have the heat system in, uh, the temperature of the box has gone up four degrees Fahrenheit, which is a huge, huge improvement. So uh, that's going to mean a hotter temperature while it's printing, which is only going to help the issue of warpage because that means the plastic is going to cool down in a much uh, more consistent rate and not as quickly as it was before. And that's my hypothesis at the moment, that that's the issue, that uh, it was just running too cold and we were literally seeing changes happen. Now, if it doesn't change, then there's definitely something else going on in my process. But uh, as any kind of experiment, we'll only find out uh, when we do it. So I'll update you guys that on, uh, I'll update you with that next week. And I also had a really cool story I wanted to touch on this week about um, a project called the MakerSat. And the MakerSat uh, tugs at my heartstrings because uh, this is a, a group in Idaho. They built the first satellite for Idaho. Um, and it's not just a regular satellite. It is a CubeSat, which is uh, near and dear to my heart because that's what I worked on in college. And uh, these, uh, this group is from Northwest uh, Nazarene University in Idaho. And they've been working on their own CubeSat development project for two and a half years. Uh, The MakerSat project, uh, the Department of Engineering's CubeSat Research and Development Initiative, is part of a larger technological development partnership between the Department of Engineering, NASA, Made in Space, Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, and B-Space. The MakerSat team, consisting of NNU students, uh, Braden Grimm, Mitch Kamstra, Connor Nogales, Aaron Ewing, and Grant Johnson, along with professors Dr. Stephen Park and Dr. Joshua Griffin, have been working on designing the CubeSat that will ultimately be 3D printed and assembled at the International Space Station and then launched into space. And it will be the first satellite or spacecraft ever to be built in space. And this is a fantastic use of 3D printing and and the synergy of 3D printing in space is just amazing. I, I love like this is this is getting manufacturing in space and even more, you know, having the International Space Station not just being, you know, an orbital laboratory and docking point for supplies and, and crafts, to be able to then launch CubeSats, which they do do um, on occasion, but to be able to take it a step further and to be able to build the these spacecraft and satellites on board and then just deploy them, 
makes a an international the international space station and any space station a a much bigger deal and, and a, a much more dynamic hub orbiting the planet you know i mean cubesats are are something that are are already changing the way that we're going to be doing research in space and science in space in orbit really uh but they're going to change it even more coming up here you know uh miniaturizing satellites and making them something that in this case can be manufactured in orbit uh drastically changes your ability and your speed at which you can do things uh in space and you know obviously those two things both cost and speed are big factors in space travel and space science so i love what this team is doing to take it a step further and and take an idea and go for it so um and i, and I was thinking about it too i mean uh, what a great opportunity as any kind of engineer or scientist or college student to be a part of a plan and uh, a project that you can work on for two and a half years. And like, if I had that opportunity, it was like, yeah, dude, you want to keep working on it? Fuck yes, I want to keep working on it. This is incredible. You're not going to get to do this anymore. And that's why I enjoyed that the project I did uh, in college so much was because you just knew, man, I have an opportunity to, to, to do something just fantastic. Um, and it's incredible. So I'll get back to the story. Uh, enough of my nerding out. Uh, we'll have more time for that later. Uh, the Makersat mission has four main objectives. To demonstrate the capabilities of 3D printing in space. To demonstrate multi-user, multi-project architecture. To study the rate of decay of 3D printed polymers in outer space and to take photographs of Earth from orbit. But according to 3dprint.com, before it can be 3D printed and assembled in space, however, a CubeSat must be able to be 3D printed and assembled on Earth. And the NNU team just completed that goal, earning their CubeSat the distinction of the first satellite to be manufactured in Idaho. <laughs> so that's friggin' awesome. So congratulations, Idaho. Congratulations, NNU team. Uh, you guys are doing groundbreaking work. And uh, I think that was a really good point that um, 3dprint.com made that, you know, before it can be 3D printed and assembled in space, the CubeSat has to be able to be 3D printed and assembled on Earth, which may seem obvious, but I mean, it's a really great point to make that, you know, there are steps to these things. And, you know, uh, the big step in this process in getting manufacturing in space of these CubeSats went to be able to do it on Earth. So the fact that they've done this is a huge, huge thing. Um, you know, uh, just to tell you a little bit more about what this team has been dealing with, uh, we'll talk about more about this 3dprint.com article. Uh, earlier this year, NASA selected the MakerSat team in the seventh round of its CubeSat launch initiative, which creates opportunities for small satellite payloads to fly into space aboard rockets scheduled to launch for unrelated missions. Uh, the MakerSat's launch was scheduled to happen in March of 2018, but recently, NASA approached the team and asked them how they felt about launching in March of 2017 instead. And that would mean that the satellite would need to be completed by November. And 
would mean that the final testing, uh, so that the final testing could be done before the launch. So uh, Dr. Park said that the team put in about a thousand hours of work over the past two months, and that was to get the satellite ready in time. And they finished, and they're ready to go. So on November 4th, it's going to be shipped to California for final testing. And on March 16th, 2017, I'm putting it in my calendar, um, it will head into space along an NOAA satellite. And over the next 10 years, it's going to orbit the Earth at a speed of 17,000 miles an hour, which means it's going to complete a full orbit every 100 minutes. So the MakerSat Zero, uh, is, which is the first iteration of the satellite, uh, is going to be making its way. And then uh, the next one, um, the MakerSat One, will be built and deployed from the International Space Station. So uh, it's, a, it's a really amazing story. Uh, I'm, I'm glad 3dprint.com covered it. And I just love the synergy, the back and forth of 3D printing in space. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. And let's move on with some orbital news for this week. In orbital news this week, we had some exciting uh, action uh, actually coming back to Earth, where Expedition 49 landed after its 115-day mission. Uh, according to the post uh, by Mark Garcia on the blogs.nasa.gov forward slash space station, which is the International Space Station update blog, uh, NASA astronaut Kate Rubens of NASA, Antonoli Ivanishin and Roscosmos of Roscosmos, and Takuya Onishi of the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency safely landed their Soyuz MS-01 spacecraft in Kazakhstan southeast of the remote town of Jezgazgan at 11.58 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday, October 29th. Um, I was uh, checking <laughs> the status of this while I was at the Halloween party, and uh, I, I may have been the nerd checking uh, his phone drunkenly at a party, but that's because I fucking love science, okay? So, uh, Russian recovery teams are helping... Uh, the crew exit the, I guess this would be in past tense now, the Russian recovery teams helped the crew exit the Soyuz spacecraft and adjust the gravity to gravity after their stay in space. Uh, the trio was transported by helicopter to Karaganda, Kazakhstan, where they split up uh, Rubens and Onishi returning to Houston in a NASA jet and Ivanishin uh, flying back to his training base at Star City in Russia. Uh, during their time on the orbiting complex, Rubens ventured outside the confines of the station for two spacewalks. Uh, during the first one, August 19th of 2016, she and NASA astronaut Jeff Williams installed the first international docking adapter. Outfitted with a host of sensors and systems, the adapter's main purpose is to provide a port for commercial spacecraft to bring the astronauts to the station in the future. And uh, that is uh, for, you know, spacecraft like Boeing Starliner and SpaceX's Crew Dragon, um, you know, the next generation of commercial crew uh, spacecraft. So this is an upgraded port. So now we'll be able to have a much uh, 
hopefully safer um, uh, and updated uh, adapters so that we can get these astronauts off American soil once again and docking with the International Space Station. Um, on her second spacewalk on September 1st, 2016, Rubens and Williams retracted a spare thermal control radiator and installed two new high-definition cameras. Uh, together, the Expedition 49 crew members contributed to hundreds of experiments in biology, biotechnology, physical science, and earth science aboard the world-class orbiting laboratory during their 115 days in space. Um, Rubens and Onishi spent a total of 115 days in space during their first mission for the both of them, and Ivanishin now has 280 days in space during his two flights. Uh, Expedition 50 uh, with Shane Kimbrough of NASA in command and his crewmates Sergei Rizk, uh, I apologize, uh, Rizikov and Andrei Boysenko of Roscosmos. Seriously, I do apologize. My pronunciation is just simply terrible sometimes. Uh, but uh, they will operate on the station for three weeks until the arrival of the new crew members. Uh, Peggy Whitston of NASA, Thomas Pesquet of ESA, the European Space Agency, and Oleg Novitsky of Roscosmos. See, that one was easy. Uh, are scheduled to launch November 17th from Balkaner, Kazakhstan. Um, and so it's it's great to have them back. You know, it's always a sigh of relief, you know, seeing um, expedition members land back. But, you know, the Soyuz system is a very tried system. And, uh, you know, having the system where you can land on land definitely makes a lot of uh, the recovery system a lot easier. You know, an ocean landing, although it's the largest target, definitely provides a lot of error and more complexity to the whole thing. Um, you know, an ocean landing, the, they train for ocean landings a lot. Um, they're not easy. Um, there's always the issue with the spacecraft, and having it in water is just... Uh, can be disastrous. Uh, but you know, with the Soyuz system, um, you know, that, uh, last minute, um, propulsive burst from the engines, uh, helps soften that landing a lot. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really great. You know, one of the moments that that happens every time, um, the Soyuz comes in, uh, the plasma, uh, on the entry heats up and there's an actual, um, dead zone of communication because the communication can't get through the plasma that's building up on the outside of the spacecraft. Um, that's definitely one of those moments, you know, especially if, uh, you haven't seen a lot of them. Uh, it's, it's one of those moments like, okay, you know, where are they? Are they okay? You know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm just glad they're back, back on earth. And, uh, I actually managed to catch, uh, an interview, uh, with Kate Rubens cause she's, she's just so badass. I love Kate Rubens. Um, and I'm honestly, I'm super proud to have her as an American astronaut and, uh, all the work she's done, I mean, has been a thrill to follow. Um, but also has been just, uh, I mean, she's a great communicator too. I mean, you, you love listening to Kate Rubens talk about things. Um, and she's been a joy to watch. I mean, I love, I love seeing her hair just bounce around in zero gravity. I think it's awesome. Uh, but, uh, she explains things really well too. Um, so that's a, that's a huge thing 
a huge combination, a winning combination to have uh, as as a flight engineer. So uh, this last interview was with um, the NIH director, uh, Dr. Francis Collins, uh, which is the National Institute of Health uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and they, they had some time to talk back and forth. So I had a bunch of questions. So I'm going to uh, quote some of the answers and kind of talk about uh, some of the things they talked about because I found them really interesting. Uh, and the video will be in this week's uh, link if you want to listen. But uh, question one, uh, which was a really interesting question from someone online, was can you get the flu in space on the ISS? And I had never really even thought about that. But uh, uh, apparently, uh, you know, quarantined and screened astronauts is is the way they do things. So, you know, every single astronaut that's going up there, Tychonaut, uh, Cosmonaut, they're all screened and they're all quarantined before they go up for a while to make sure that they don't have any illnesses going up there. So there's no possibility of transmitting a cold up there, which I never even thought of. I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's fucking wild. Um, now, there is, I mean, there's obviously ways you can get sick. I mean, there's other microbiological illnesses, foodborne illnesses that are possible. Um, but as far as like the flu and other colds, uh, you can't get them because no one has them. So uh, <laughs> it came from Zeta Great Things. We were saying isolating humans from other humans is an extremely effective antiviral transmission technique, which I thought was great. She was laughing, of course, you know, she's... Uh, he's a virologist. So for her, you know, it's just hilarious, but, uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. So interesting, right? I mean, you can't get a cold in space because no one going up to space uh, under NASA and Roscosmos and, uh, all the other agencies, you know, they're made sure they don't have anything. So, uh, question two, um, are we researching the radiation that's happening while in orbit? And, uh, she was saying, uh, yes, they definitely are. And, you know, one of the reasons they're doing it in orbit and not on Earth is because they just can't simulate the same mix of radiation particles and, and really just the radiation that is hitting you in low Earth orbit. Um, you know, the, the the lasers and the systems that we have, the beams that we have on Earth, they just can't do that. Um, and they are doing the tests uh, on board for radiation effects on things like stem cells, the cardiomyocytes, and the rodent models. So, you know, this radiation research is kind of happening all the time because they're just potentially always being barraged with radiation. And um, I think even some of the tests are being done to show specifically what's going on with long, you know, long-term radiation and things like that. Um, you know, an important thing to know about radiation, not that I'm an expert by any means, but um, how it's been told to me is, you know, it's really all about the exposure time, you know. Um, even if you had a really big blast of radiation, really short, you're better off than having like a moderate amount of radiation for a long time. Um, you at least have a chance. I mean, obviously, if the radiation burst is too big at the beginning, then that's bad. Um, but shorter is definitely the way to go uh, if you can help it with radiation. Uh, what's some other questions here? Um, oh, this was cool. I thought this was interesting because it's something that we hit on with the with episode 100 of the show, 
and the Drinking with Engineers with my geneticist buds, uh, John Neary and, and Neil Crawford, um, that even with, you know, the research that they did on board and being able to now um, sequence DNA in space, which <laughs> Kate Rubens was saying, you know, when they started the experiment, they weren't even sure it was going to work. Um, and now they've sequenced over a billion uh, a billion base pairs, which uh, according to uh, uh, Dr. Francis Collins is about a third of the human genome. So that's, I, I mean, the human genome is complex now and they've already sequenced over a billion base pairs in space. So that's incredible. Um, you know, with, with the, with the minion device, that's awesome. I mean, that's a huge step forward from where we were before. I mean, the, the, the pace at what they're going and able to do is amazing. But back to my point, um, the question came up, you know, what will we do if DNA is found, you know, outside of earth, if it's not like human DNA? And that was something that I think both Neri and Neil talked about that. Yeah. If we do find other life or something we want to research and run through a sequencer on our spacecraft of the future, we might not even be, our, our literal instruments might not even be able to read them because they're not actual DNA. You know, they're not nucleic acid. Like they're not the same structure. They're, they're different that's a total possibility. So the machine wouldn't even know what it's reading. So like, that's, that's, that's wild in itself. Um, but you know, Kate was saying that they will be able to look at things, uh, and, and adjust it so that they will be able to look at, um, nucleic acid ish things as she put it. So, you know, if it's not exactly, uh, nucleic acid, uh, then they will still be able uh, to look at it. Um, I mean, hopefully that is the case. Um, but if it isn't, wow, does that does that change the game? Because if life, if the playbook of life, the, the, the entire manual of life, which is DNA and stuff like that, is different, and it's not just DNA, and it can depend on the solar system you live in, the... the the materials you have to create life, you know, if life can be created in different scenarios, uh, maybe it builds itself and runs itself on different platforms, which makes sense. But for our sake, uh, for at least the, the quickness of being able to find life somewhere else and have something that confirms it, let's hope it's at least nucleic acid ish, as Kate Rubens put it. Um, uh, another question was, uh, what other effects does gravity have in DNA and microfluidics, which is uh, a great follow-up to episode 100. And, uh, she had some, some good takes, you know, um, bubbles form in their liquids all the time. Uh, and she showed a great image. She took a, a bag of, uh, fluid and showed how the air bubbles form, or just the bubbles in general. And... It's very interesting. I mean, you definitely got to take a look at it. It's, uh, I don't really understand what I'm looking at quite yet, but um, it does look a little bit different than what you'd expect, you know, bubbles to look like on Earth. Um, 
Another big thing she said, you know, surface tension is a huge help. The fact that there's surface tension, if there wasn't, it would be a big problem. And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the picture of, um, you know, astronauts doing the, the pushing the water out of the, uh, the bag and then it just kind of, uh, settles there. I mean, water has, has tremendous surface tension. Um, and if we didn't have it, then the, any of the fluids wouldn't be able to run through pipes very easily and we wouldn't be able to contain it very easily. You know, if, if, if things got out and they just kind of completely became like little tiny balls everywhere of, of fluid, then we would never be able to do anything. So I thought that was really cool. Service tension being key. Um, cell function is affected. And this is, this is something that I, 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 I found fascinating. So, um, how the, how the cell functions, um, is dependent because the cells are no longer being forced to the bottom of the plate. So they're growing kind of free form. They're kind of just allowed to, um, to function and develop and react to each other, uh, in a different way that you don't have in space in, in on earth, which, you know, all of them, because of gravity, it helps us, uh, it gives us a force already, um, which is obviously, uh, in, in any of our cases down towards the center of the planet. Um, so that helps with these processes and that's what we're used to. And the lack of it means that these cells are going to f- function without that. So that, that, that was fun. And the other thing, uh, is that, you know, the, the molecular composition assays should be the same. So there's no crazy, uh, difference in chemical law that's going up there. You know, the, these things are staying the same. It's just how these cells are functioning, uh, without gravity. Um, and question five, uh, was, or at least that I picked out, um, was, were there any differences with the cardiomyocytes in orbit? Because she's looked, she's viewed them and tested them before. And, and she was saying that they were, you know, allowed to grow because, they weren't allowed to go to the bottom of the plate. Um, they were allowed to just grow in this like 3d structure and, uh, grow up like that. Um, and she was saying, you know, the way, um, they were interacting and growing and communicating with each other was definitely different. Um, but, uh, there is a paper coming out that should be coming out pretty soon. So hopefully we'll try and see if we can get, uh, access to that paper. And I would love to have, um, both, uh, either Neil and Neary, if I can find them, or I've got plenty of other uh, biomedical engineers, uh, friends that we can call in. And uh, maybe, I don't know if someone's got any cardiomyocyte research. We'll have to find out. Um, and we'll, so we'll get someone in here with some experience and we'll, we'll, ask, we'll ask some questions. We'll see what could be going on there. So uh, that was fun. You know, Kate Rubens has been a joy to watch in orbit and it's very, very, uh, Great to see her back safely on land, and uh, I can't wait to see what else she does uh, with her career as an astronaut and her career going forward. I mean, she is a virus hunter, and uh, uh, she's going to do great things, so I can't wait to keep uh, up on her. So thank you, Kate Rubens, for being awesome, and uh, that does it for this week's Orbital News. So, uh, before we close out this week, uh, I ran across a really interesting article, uh, and it, uh, uh, entails planet nine, which of course has been, 
uh, something uh, the internet loves to talk about uh, and uh, and make theories about. But uh, you know, there's there's actually now even more of a case for Planet Nine actually being a thing, um, and this is going to be a continuing um, topic as we find more ways to find evidence and more ways that the Planet Nine theory could explain certain things because, you know, honestly having the idea of planet nine is great, but, um, if there's no physical, like physics reason to why there would be a plan, a ninth planet, um, with this crazy, uh, orbit, um, then, you know, it doesn't really fit, but, um, you know, they remember planet nine, they originally found it from this wobble of the, um, the Oort cloud, no, it wasn't the Oort cloud, it was the uh, Kuiper Belt objects. It was this slight wobble that they were looking at, and they were like, wait a minute, like, why? The only way it would wobble is if there's some massive object that's, you know, uh, influencing, and and the gravity is then making this pull on these objects. And so the great way to explain that would be this Planet Nine that has this strange orbit that's not... Um, directly in the plane of our solar system. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it could have the mass of, I believe it was Neptune, and could have this, you know, really long orbit. So, um, you know, it was a great theory, got put out there, and it does have some legs. So, but the problem is we've got to be able to find it. And with the orbital period that it has, um, we would have to check, we would have to check a very, large like if we were if we didn't know where it was and we couldn't find out where it was and we have to we had to check everywhere the orbit could be that would take an extremely long time to find that so um i think the proper way to do that would be to you know go through the analysis see when the pull happens in um the carbon belt objects and try and figure out okay at this time, it looks like the Kuiper Belt objects pull in, which means the object would be closer. You know, something like that. Do some kind of orbital mechanics analysis and figure out um, a region to look. You know, limit down that view scope because, um, you know, the orbit of this thing and how, how many years it would take, we would either have to watch one spot for thousands of years uh, just to hopefully catch it, um, or we would have to get real savvy and think, okay, where should we be looking and narrow that down? Um, but back to the original reason for this point, um, there's new evidence out there that could help explain the planet nine theory, which is that, um, there's also this strange six degree wobble of the sun's orbital uh, or the sun's rotation. So, um, you know, in the perfect model, the sun is the center of the solar system and everything else orbits around it. Um, but even the sun, even as massive as it is, as it is, is still influenced gravitationally by the other massive objects around it. So it is a give and take, this, this gravitational exchange that's going on, this dance of, uh, orbital revolutions. Um, it is a give and take, even a massive object like that does get pushed and pulled. Uh, I guess pulled would be, it doesn't ever get pushed, it gets pulled. So regardless, um, there is this, uh, slight wobble or perturbation as they always say, um, 
in the sun's rotational axis. So what is causing this slight change and um it's it apparently has not been explained you know we see the mass that we have um but we don't you know we we know the mass that or if we take the mass that we are um that we know of that's out there in our solar system which is not great but it's it's a good indicator um it doesn't explain why the sun wobbles like that now there are plenty of other uh, ways that it's been explained in the past, but um, it's making large, grand assumptions um, on how the early solar system was created, and that's what this article was getting into. That um, you know, that's not a testable uh, experiment or something that can be tested, so we can't really take it as good scientific evidence. So, uh, a th- way that we could. Uh, explain and test, more importantly, this would be to run it through the case that this planet nine could could be and has been affecting over a large period of time the that six degree uh, wobble um, that's happening with the sun. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see where this goes um, and adds more fire under the planet nine research and um, I'll do a little bit more research and get back to you guys on really more about that. I really do want to do some more research into some orbital mechanics. I really did love um, you know, the courses I took uh, about orbital mechanics and just planetary dynamics, how gravitation influences the other. You know, my my information is based on just some orbital mechanics that I've done. I've run the equations and, you know, we've done some literally took a class where we planned missions to Mars and you had to uh, literally use, you know, gravitational slingshots essentially to get where you need to be. And we, we, that was through the class was figuring out, okay, you know, like how did the Voyager probe get where it was? You know, it was this gravitational uh, path it took and slingshotting different planets to get there. So, I mean, that, that shit's fucking wild. So I, I want to do some more research in the future here and, uh, We'll uh, we'll do an episode about it. All right, and uh, that's about it, folks. You know, uh, I hope you had a great Halloween. I hope you have a great Halloween if you're listening to this on Monday, um, and uh, have a great week. All right, uh, go out there, fucking keep your head up and uh, and keep going for it. All right, spread love, spread science, and go for it. All right, everybody, love y'all. See you next week. <laughs>